and in Nomine in Six Parts by Henry Purcell, played by uh, Fretwork. You can hear more music of Henry Purcell next Sunday at 9 a.m. on Here of a Sunday Morning. You are tuned to WBAI New York. We're so divided. We live in a very divided country. Like, it's crazy. America is a fundamentally good country. We have good people with good values who want to do the right thing. We often get on with the job. We don't always talk about it as much as men. But the structures of power that exist are working to their own ends. We have to learn to put up with the fact that some people say things that we don't like. All you can hope is that they die and leave you a tremendous amount of money. Stop trying to force a government shutdown. It does not have to happen. Let it end! Please! That's not going to happen. We live by one rule and one rule only. Never again will we allow ourselves to be put in such a position. Tune in for a shortcut. 11 p.m. New Year's Eve, right here on WBAI-FM. All of this is entirely preventable. I swear it by the old gods and you. Twice 13. My name is Dan Ingram, and I'm a WBAI fan. They've always been, you know, the station that kicked butt and the station that said what you're not supposed to say because the people in power don't want to hear it, and I love that. I have to celebrate you, baby. Good afternoon to this last Sunday of 2013, and welcome to Beyond the Pale with your host, Adam J. Sachs. Every Sunday at noon on WBAI, listener-sponsored free speech radio at 99.5 on your FM dial and streaming live on the Internet at WBAI.org. And go to beyondthepale.org, that's pale, P-A-L-E, as in Lou Reed's Pale Blue Eyes, for the archive and podcasts, which are also available via the iTunes Store. And don't forget the Pacifica Radio app, available for iPhone, which provides live streams and access to the Pacifica Radio network that includes radio in seven different markets with numerous affiliates. It's the end of the year, and many turn to thoughts of tax time. Not made the donations you resolved to yet this year? As thanks for the support of friends like you in 2013, we're giving away an Apple iPad Mini to a lucky donor who gives between Thursday, December 26th and midnight, Tuesday, December 31st. Make an end-of-the-year tax donation of any kind over $25 at WBAI's donation site, give to WBAI.org. That's give the number to WBAI.org to qualify. Make a favorite show e-donation. Become a member or choose from the many health, public affairs, music and arts, or science and technology thank you gifts. Your year-end contribution won't just tell us that you believe in WBAI's important programming, won't just make or extend your membership at WBAI, will also automatically qualify you to win an iPad mini. So go to give to WBAI.org and make a donation before it's too late. The winner will be announced January 3rd, 2014. Today we have a show dedicated to things cultural. We are taking some time to memorialize three cultural greats who changed their fields and even the way we see reality, who expanded the possibilities for music, pop presentation, and art. Recent R.I.P. Lou Reed, who fused the demimonde and beat poetry with pop. Brian Epstein, whose flair fused femininity and rock and roll, transforming it into art with the Beatles. And Mark Chagall, who fused Jewish and Christian iconography and made the crucifixion the center of his Jewish art about the Holocaust. <laughs> 
Passed away at the end of October from liver disease. Complications, possibly from a life that at least chronicled, if not partook of the demi monde. Inextricably bound up with New York and with the advent of punk, Brian Eno said everyone who bought his first Velvet Underground album started a band of their own. We will try to sparse fact from fiction and examine the many subtexts at work. We are here to speak with Stephen Bieber, who claims for Reed the mantle of Zaydi, or grandfather of Jewish punk. Perhaps less surprising when one learns Lou Reed's own grandfather's name was Mendel Rabinowitz. Good afternoon, Stephen Hello. Lee Bieber. Hi, Adam. How are you doing? Welcome to Beyond the Pale. Sure. Thanks for having me. Mr. Bieber is the author of The Heebie-Jeebies at CBGB's, A Secret History of Jewish Punk, the editor of Awake, a reader for The Sleepless, and the associate editor of the literary journal Conduit. He has an MFA in fiction and teaches creative writing, creative nonfiction at Lesley University. First of all, Mr. Bieber, what is Jewish punk, and in what sense is Lou Reed the grandfather thereof? Well, Jewish punk, first thing you have to keep in mind is it's uh, not just Jewish punk. I mean, there is something more recent history uh, in which bands identify themselves as Jewish and play that up almost as like a shtick. Uh, Moshiach Oi, uh, Golem in a more klezmer punk kind of fashion, Punk Torah, Can Can, these bands. Uh, but that's more recent history. Really, what I'm looking at in my book is punk itself. The original punk that started in New York is largely Jewish. So in a sense, punk itself is Jewish or comes out of the Jewish experience. Uh, by that, I don't mean Judaic. I don't mean religious. I mean, it's culturally Jewish. You know, uh, these are uh, kids, the kids who created punk uh, came of age in the shadow of the Holocaust. They're the first generation that grew up after that horrible, tragic event. And that informed a lot of their attitudes. So, you know, like Jews, from the beginning of time, or at least Jewish time, uh, they were uh, they had a sense of humor, and it was an ironic sense of humor. They looked at the world in a kind of a distanced way, a sort of in and out uh, part of the culture, but not part of the culture, and a praising of that culture. And they took humor as a way of dealing with tragedy. So you've got all these bands, and preoccupied with Nazism, so you see all these, you know, swastikas that were part of punk. People often wonder where that came from. Uh, that's a big part of it. You see this preoccupation with, you know, the, kind of the sick and the twisted, the decadent, the outsider. Uh, Joey Ramone being the, the ultimate example of uh, early punk star. And Joey was Jewish, Tommy Ramone was Jewish, Richard Hell was part Jewish, Chris Stein of Blondie's Jewish, Jonathan Richmond of the Dictators, Lou Reed himself, Alan Vega, Martin Reb, a suicide, I could go on and on. And how did Lou specifically influence all of these characters? Well, Lou, I refer to him as the Zadie of punk. The, you know, he's often called the godfather, so Yiddish for grandfather, same idea. Uh, Lou was really all of these things. In the Velvet Underground, his first band, he was a guy who was ultimately New York. And you've got to remember that punk was originally called New York rock before it was called punk rock. 
And New, uh, Lou is, is the ultimate Jewish New Yorker. He wrote about New York. He brought this focus on the little people of New York, the sort of dark side of New York, those who are ignored, you know, the white boy uptown trying to score drugs, uh, you know, as he said in his live version of, of um, uh, I Want to Be Black, you know, which is a kind of a play on that same song, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I don't want to be a, a, an effed up yeah. Jewish middle class college student no more. I want to be black, you know, I want to be part of that kind of outsider culture. And to what extent was Lou really from this demimonde that he chronicled, or was he a bard from outside? How much was fancy versus yeah. fact, considering that the two years after the underground folded, Lou was working as a typist in his dad's business firm on Long Island? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, Lou, is, he, is kinda, he was a complicated guy. So, you know, he grew up, Lewis Allen Rabinowitz, for his first year, his, his father changed the family name to Reed, and he was born in Brooklyn, like a lot of Jews, and then grew up in Freeport, Long Island, a nice suburban kid. Uh, but Lou was a rebel, and he liked rhythm and blues, you know, that early pre-rock, uh, folk music, and he rode a motorcycle to his parents, you know, dismay, wanted to play guitar, but he did go to college at Syracuse, and he studied with Delmore Schwartz, who is a, you know, a Jewish writer who was famous in, in his day for breaking in as a Jewish writer, you know, uh, identifiably Jewish, writing about those concerns. And Lou did graduate from college, so, you know, he went to New York, he worked in the equivalent of the Brill Building at Pickwick Records, a kind of poor man's Brill Building, just like, you know, um, Bert Bacharach and Carol King and all of those guys. But he associated with some people who were pretty outside the mainstream. You know, he was part of that Andy Warhol scene, which itself was somewhere between two worlds, you know, upper upper class debutantes like Edie Sedgwick, and then, you know, street people who uh, were, were drug dealers. So, you know, where to put Lou? I mean, the big thing they always say about Lou is he wrote a lot more about shooting heroin than he ever did heroin. Hmm. Yeah, but he did a lot of crystal meth, a lot of speed, so, you know, he was, he was somebody, but he, would, he had a work ethic, right? So he wouldn't do heroin, because heroin, he would just nod out. He hmm. did a lot of speed, so he could write a lot of songs. Well, he's been referred to as high IQ and low virtuosity in terms of his musical output, but how is that any different from Dylan, or even from rock generally? Can you help us think through what's really distinctive mm-hmm. here? Well, I would say it's not that different from punk. You know, rock, uh, part of what punk was doing was rebelling against a trend in rock in the early 70s, mid-70s, where, you know, prog rock, progressive rock, was this kind of arty, uh, very virtuosic, um, you know, complicated uh, guitar playing, the sort of thing that kids couldn't do. And what punk was trying to do is bring it back to the masses. And as Lenny Kay from the Patti Smith Group, the co-founder, another uh, big Jewish figure in punk, uh, his compilation... Nuggets, which was an anthology of early garage rock, that was almost like he wrote in the liner notes the, the Ten Punk Commandments is what I call them. And that was one of the things, to make it simple, do it yourself, you know, that term DIY. Uh, so that was, that was really so much a part of the Velvet Underground's aesthetic. It was really Lou Reed and John Cale were the main guys in that band in the beginning, with Lou being the primary one. And John Cale was a classically trained musician, you know, studied with Aaron Copeland. So they definitely could play their instruments, at least John Cale could, but they chose this kind of primitivist 
basic stripped-down sound uh, that you you had to know what you were doing to make that sound right, but it was not high virtuosity. No, you're right. Uh, it was pretty basic chords, and, uh, and so, yeah, Lou was right. definitely part of... I would say taking that in an artistic direction, which Punk was doing. It was very self-consciously. Of his aesthetic presentation, Michael Stipe claimed the mantle for Lou as a queer icon for the 21st century. I'm wondering what your take is that. I mean, of course, there's this interesting interlude of a relationship with the transvestite and, of course, many other elements. Could you put those together for us? Sure, sure. Well, you know, his one hit song was uh, Walk on the Wild Side produced by David Bowie, another, I would guess I would say, queer icon. And that was all about the the demimon, you know, the transvestites in part who Lou hung out with and dated Candy Darling, uh, was, I guess, his, his partner there for a, a while in the 70s. Now, I'm not sure what exactly Michael Stipe means by the 21st century, because by then, Lou was married uh, for the second time uh, to Laurie Anderson, or at least with Laurie Anderson, uh, all but married at that point. And, you know, he, but he did definitely in the mid-70s uh, with Transformer, that album that was probably his, his best-selling album, um, make uh, queer identity something to be proud of. Just like glam rock, you know, that was that whole movement that was going on at the time. So David Bowie, who produced Transformer, was part of that. Uh, Mark Bolin, another Jewish guy from T-Rex, uh, was, you know, glam, blurring gender boundaries. And uh, so, yeah, but I, I, you know, I don't know that I would say Lou was, was necessarily the first uh, icon of the 21st century. Let's turn to two clips, one from the beginning of his career, one to the end, to put in greater focus Lou and Jewish punk, or the punk of the Jews, and then Lou and his New York identity, which he was so bound up with. So let's listen to Black Angel's death song from The Velvet Underground. Sacrificials remain, make it hard to forget where you come from. The stools of your eyes serve to realize fame. Choose again. Robe misery, refrain of the sacrilege recluse for the loss of a horse with the bowels and the tail of a rat. Now you can go to Junior's days on Canal Street. I think their skin's in Boston, it must be something in LA. But Vicky's on Geek's Highway was the cream of choice. Hey, if you don't believe me, go ask any other boy. Ah, you scream, I steam. An anthem for egg cream. Can't get much more New York than that. Mr. Beaver, do you see any Jewish subtext in either of these songs and also in the investment in New York? Sure. You know, Black Angel's death song from the first of an underground album uh, is is very elusive in what exactly it's referring to, but he talks about this ghost-bloodied country uh, where the black angel weeps uh, over the old city streets in the east, uh, and the sacrificial remains make it hard to forget. I mean, it definitely sounds like Poland, where Lou's family was from, or Eastern Europe with the killing fields during World War II. And, uh, you know, that same album, the more probably better-known song, Heroin, uh, when I'm rushing on my run, I feel like Jesus' son on heroin. Well, the reason the, the character in that song is shooting heroin is to forget 
the dead bodies piled up in mounds. That's the big line that sticks out. So, you know, all those Holocaust films uh, that have been played over and over, I mean, that's the horrible image that everyone sees. Egg Cream, from much later, uh, a more upbeat song in which Lou was very identified with New York. Um, you know, Robert Criscow, the, the dean of rock and roll critics, I think is, is his, ter- his uh, title, uh, refers to that Egg Cream as the Jewish elixir of New York. And I think he's right. It's very identified with delis and, and Jewishness. So there's almost like a subtext there for Lou, you know, calling it. Uh, we all scream for Egg Cream. <laughs> Mr. Weber, thank you so much. I want to turn the audience's attention to your website. It's jewpunk.com. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks, Adam. It's great. You are listening to Beyond the Pale. The host is Adam J. Sachs, Sunday at noon, the station BAI.org, 99.5 FM. Next, we will turn to Brian Epstein and a brand-new graphic novel, The Fifth Beetle, that is shot up to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. This is uh, strange, actually, because in the beginning, I was very fierce about the business of um, the manager not being um, known at all. Uh, uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know, but it's just happened to me, actually. And uh, was it consciously done? Were you conscious of doing this? Not really. Sort of projecting. Not at all. Actually, for a long time, for at least twelve months afterwards, you know, I wouldn't. Mm. I was careful about even letting my name be mentioned. And uh, I believe I was told by a, nat- by a reporter from the national newspaper that I was terribly awkward with my first interview. Mm. But it, it, it did happen. I, you know, I, I quite enjoyed... It is quite interesting that more and more Brian Epstein emerges at the center of the story of the Beatles and this graphic novel, which now is adapted into a film. It's the project of a Broadway producer, Tony Winning, Vivek Tiwari, who has worked on The Producers, American Idiot, The Addams Family. He's also done the screenplay for the forthcoming movie adaptation of this very striking graphic novel, for which, astoundingly, he can claim to have obtained the first movie rights for Beatle music. Uh, Peyton Reed of The Yes Men will be directing, and Bruce Cohen, who won an Academy Award for American Beauty, will be at the helm. So though Paul McCartney famously awarded Brian Epstein the title of Fifth Beatle, in many ways he was much more, perhaps, even the creator of the Beatle image and concept. Yet Brian, already managing a successful family music business, had little to prove, certainly less need for financial gain. <clears throat> and against type, he was a sensitive soul. One could argue why he even got involved to begin with, as arguably it ended up doing him in. So the story of the Fifth Beetle, uh, while we get into Brian's entire life story, it really focuses on the last seven years of his life, which is the years that he spends with the Beatles. So it starts off in 1961 Liverpool. And in 1961 Liverpool, um, Brian is in his mid-twenties. He's very restless. While it is true that he is working in a, a relatively successful family business, uh, and on the surface, it would seem like he has a lot going for him. Internally, he has a lot of personal struggles and a lot of unrequited dreams. Brian Epstein was gay at a period where it was literally a felony to be gay in the United Kingdom. He was Jewish at a time where anti-Semitism was rampant throughout the country. And quite frankly, he was from Liverpool. And Liverpool, while it had strategic importance as a port town, there was nothing cultural going on in Liverpool. It was a city with no cultural influence. And Brian Epstein wanted to make a difference in the world. He was restless, 
and he felt that, that with his internal uh, 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 handicaps, if you will, it was very difficult for him to, to make a statement and to make a change in the world for better. And he was kind of looking for his outlet to do that. And one day he saw the Beatles perform at the Cavern Club. And in the Beatles, he saw a group that had a great message of love to share. He saw a group that had personality, that had style, and that lifted people's spirits, uh, putting it very bluntly. Um, and for someone, to use a Beatles reference, that had to hide his own love away uh, because of his homosexuality, he saw in the Beatles a chance to work with, with a, a group, a unit, that could spread a lot of love into the world. And he believed that the Beatles were going to be bigger than Elvis, and that they would elevate pop music to an art form, and that, you know, as I said, he, that they would spread a lot of love into the world, and those were his dreams. And quite frankly, for a gay Jewish man to run, run, be running around Liverpool saying, I found a local band and they're going to be bigger than Elvis, it was ludicrous. You know, this was, was a laughable dream. Um, but obviously it was a worthy dream. Uh, it was a dream that Brian pursued with steadfast uh, determination uh, and persistence. And it was a spectacular dream and he realized it beautifully. And as a, as a result, the world got the Beatles. And there is this coincidence, if you like, somewhat macabre, that just one month after Brian's untimely death, uh, the criminalization of homosexuality was lifted in the UK, and to some extent in your wonderful book, he's framed, or at least the suggestion is there for the reader, that he was a martyr, in a way, for the cause, uh, for equal rights, uh, for gay people. And um, in some sense, there's also the question to what extent Brian brought a style, a sensitive, almost more feminine style to the Beatles that was extremely crucial in their success and was something new to popular music at this time instead of an aggressive masculinity. And of course, the Beatles sang many girl group songs at the time. So I'm curious about your thoughts to that, but also to what extent was Brian also extremely unlucky in love? As much as he was a persecuted gay man, he also had difficulty, it would seem, finding thriving personal relationships. Yeah, so you said a lot of stuff there, and, uh, and I'll, I'll try to touch on all of them. You know, first, as, as it relates to the packaging and presentation of the Beatles, you know, it is my personal feeling that his homosexuality uh, informed that uh, to a great degree. Uh, I believe because of his sexual orientation, Brian was able to see a tremendous amount of potential in the band uh, uh, to be loved by everyone. He saw why girls would love them, why boys would love them, why parents would love them, why children would love them, why grandparents might even uh, appreciate them if presented in the right way. Um, you know, and I, I don't know about uh, saying that it was, um, you know, that he had a feminine touch, but he definitely came with, with a sense of fashion and theatricality. You know, in in a, in a previous uh, attempts at at, uh, at chasing dreams, Brian thought he might want to be a dress designer, and that was uh, that didn't work out. It wasn't as fulfilling as he thought it might be. But it is an example of his sense of style. He also went to Rada to drama school and thought that perhaps he was going to become an actor, uh, which sort of underscores his interest in theatricality. And I think he brought that to the Beatles. You know, he came up with the idea of the suits and the haircuts. He instructed them in their performance-ending bows. You know, in a lot of ways, he made the early Beatles a theatrical uh, act. Um, you know, he never uh, touched their music. He believed that their music was theirs. He never told them to clean up the music. He never told them to make the sound less aggressive. 
uh, and certainly a lot of parents at the time did think they were loud and noisy and, and, and rock, scruffy rock stars as, as, uh, as parents of any generation sort of complain about their children's music. So that didn't change, but the presentation, the theatricality, the packaging of the Beatles was really in large part uh, down to Brian and down to Brian's style. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say that that's because of his homosexuality, but his homosexuality certainly was a large influence uh, in, in, in his interests. And so I think there is a connection there. Um, and very unusual for an artist manager. You know, I don't think the, the world certainly had never seen an artist manager like that at the time. And, uh, and there have been, they've been few and far between since then. You know, he was the gentleman manager. You know, you normally think of artist managers as being sharks who are uh, out to get the, the most they can out of their clients and really the most they can for themselves. Um, but Brian wasn't about that. Brian was the, the gentleman manager who believed in an elegant presentation, who believed in, in, uh, in, in keeping his word, and, um, and who believed in chasing artistic dreams. I mean, his dream wasn't to make the Beatles the most financially successful group on the planet. His dream was that the Beatles would elevate pop music into an art form. Two very different approaches to, to the school of management. Uh, and as you know, in the book, uh, there's a sequence where we compare and contrast um, uh, Brian's uh, management style with that of Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis Presley's manager, who is the uh, the manager of the other largest, arguably the uh, the equally largest artist on the planet uh, in that day and in that in in that era, and they're two completely different managers. You know, Colonel Parker uh, very famously referred to Elvis as an attraction instead of an artist. Uh, you know, they just approached it in two completely different ways, and um, so Brian was really unique. And uh, he really did bring a, a flair and a style to artist management that, that really benefited the Beatles and I think went a large part into creating uh, the Beatles as we know them. There is an apocryphal story of when the Beatles were in New York at the Plaza Hotel and met Bob Dylan. And I was just curious because I don't think it was directly treated in the graphic novel. And there is the story apparently that this rather colorful but lost to history uh, character, Al Aronowitz, was with Bob Dylan, and they introduced the Beatles, so the story goes, to funky cigarettes. But Brian Epstein was also there, and was also part of the discussion, and of course, you had two, at least one or two, sort of flamboyant American Jews with Brian Epstein, who apparently in the middle had an incident of hilarity where he kept on sort of coming out as a Jew and referring to himself that way, and I bring that up because of the extent to which it would seem that Brian was very tight-lipped and it was necessary for him to maintain a kind of impeccable appearance, much more in a European uh, manner of being a Jew. But there was also, of course, there were comments, apocryphal comments as well, of John Lennon saying that show business is part of the Jewish religion and that uh, Paul McCartney was dissuaded to agree to Brian, manager, Brian Epstein as his manager because of his father's experiences with Brian's father, although, of course, McCartney married two Jewish women. But I just wanted to see your thoughts about how you see the depiction. How did you decide to depict the question of him as a Jew? Yeah, I mean, Brian's Judaism is a large part of his, his struggles. Uh, as I mentioned, the way I look at it, his three uh, largest personal struggles were the fact that he was gay, the fact that he was Jewish, and the fact that he came from Liverpool, uh, and probably in that order. Um, obviously, the anti-Semitism was a difficult thing to deal with. Uh, the homosexuality, um, I think, was a deeper part of his struggles, if only because it was illegal. 
Um, while it may not have been easy to be a Jew, it wasn't illegal. Um, however, uh, anti-Semitism was, was, I mean, I, I, I use the word rampant, uh, but, but, you know, commonplace might even be a, an, a, an easy, a, a more apropos word. People would make anti-Semitic comments without even realizing they were being anti-Semitic. It was like a way of life back then. And um, it's interesting what you say about, uh, about John Lennon and, and Paul McCartney's um, reactions because to his Judaism, because the truth is, in my research, I've not really found either of those things to be accurate. I mean, John would, would uh, was an acerbic guy, and he would say things to get a rise, um, you know. But but this comment that uh, you know show business is part of the Jewish religion, um, you know, that might might ring true now, and it might have rung true, you know, towards the end of John Lennon's life. But the truth is, in, in 1961, uh, England, it was not the case at all. You know, Jews did not work uh, extensively in, in the music industry. The music industry was run by uh, old British white Catholic knights of the, of the empire. I mean, people like Sir Lou Grade. You know, they weren't run by young people with last names like Epstein. You know, Brian's Judaism made him an outsider, not an insider, when it came to show business. He wasn't the only uh, Jew, um, you know, uh, paving a way in, the, in the, the music industry, but he was, they were few and far between. And from what I can tell, Brian's family was very well respected in Liverpool. They were successful business people. Um, they carried themselves with a great bit of decorum. And quite frankly, they run a very, they, uh, Brian ran a very successful record store. So my research suggests that the McCartney family respected the Epstein family. Uh, you know, I, don't I, I have not found any research that holds any water that suggests that Paul's family and, or his father was wary of, of Brian managing his son because he was Jewish. Uh, quite the opposite. I, I, my, my research suggests that all the families were uh, were charmed by Brian. They found him to be elegant. They found him to be eloquent, uh, and they found him to be, as we were discussing before, off type. You know, all the families, understandably, were were nervous about their children entering a rough and tumble field like rock and roll. And to see somebody respectful like Brian Epstein suggesting that he would would guide them. I think was a comfort to the parents, at least with the research that I have done, and this is 21 years of, re of deep research specifically focusing on Brian Epstein, um, suggests that, that the families were actually very supportive of that and that the Judaism uh, wasn't an issue at all. It's quite interesting because, of course, what comes to mind as a contrast would be Alan Klein, mm. the manager of the Stones, who then, of course, through a lot of turbulence, comes at the very end That's correct, yeah. for the Beatles. And he really much more, one would say, would fit a ruthless New York type of character. And it's interesting because you go very gentle. He doesn't really come up in the book. And that's, so the last question really has to do with how you treated the ending. I think it's a very powerful conclusion to the book. But one also can't help but receive the suggestion that somehow, with Brian, the Beatles had a striking career like summit, uh, ascending the summit to a peak of Mount Everest. And this amazing conclusion with the Our World first international satellite broadcast with All You Need Is Love. And then it seems that right after, of course, there's this famous quote from John Lennon that they didn't really know what to do after he died. And that suddenly, even though, of course, the music was as good as ever, they were without a rudder, without a direction. That's correct. What are your thoughts on that? It seems that you're, you're gentle with the last two years where there were Beatles, but no more Brian Epstein. Yeah, I mean, the book really does end in 1967 with Brian Epstein's passing. You know, we don't get too much into the aftermath of that. There is a little postscript and there is uh, sort of intimations of what comes afterwards. 
and people like to play these sort of what if games, or you know, and if Brian uh, had lived, would he have kept the Beatles together? Would they not have broken up? Would they have had more of a rudder, uh, you know, steering the ship? And it's it's hard to say, you know. Uh, however, I, I will say this, uh, and I will I will be bold enough to say it with certainty. Um, I don't know if Brian could have kept the band together because they had they were strong personalities and they were all becoming very um, talented artists in their own right. Uh, George Harrison, in particular, who had been kept in the shadows as a songwriter, was coming into his own as a as a songwriter of uh, of, of equal caliber, depending on your tastes, uh, as as John and Paul. And there were there were strong personalities in the band, and I could and they were wanting to do their own thing. And um, so, could he have kept the band together? Maybe not. But I will say. I think there is no chance that Brian would have let the Beatles explode so spectacularly uh, and ugly uh, in, and publicly as they did. Uh, if you're a Beatles fan, you'll know that the demise of the Beatles was was very public and was very acrimonious. They were suing each other. They were saying nasty things about each other. They were saying nasty things about each other's fiancés and spouses. I mean, it was it was if I if I may say so, it was disgusting. And here was a group that their entire career was all about love. You know, lovely Rita, she loves you, all you need is love. And Brian was the guy that helped to spread this message across the globe. And then they burnt out in a sea of hatred. Uh, Brian would never have let that happen. You know, in a lot of ways, the Beatles, I think, were, were the closest thing Brian was going to have to children. You know, they were partially the children that, that he was never, as a gay man, was never going to have. He loved them like family. And like any family and any father, you want to keep your kids together. You don't want your, you know, you, you, blood is blood. You know, you can't, you can't sever the ties of blood. And I think Brian would have orchestrated a scenario where, like many other great bands, they were just taking some time off, or they never broke up, but they just stopped making records. And every now and then, they might do something together. No, maybe, maybe not. But they wouldn't have had this this uh, this ugly public flame out. Uh, that we saw in the Beatles, and I really—I'll be so bold as to say that—that that, that I, I will stand by that. Could he have kept the band together? Could he have bridged the gap? Could he have given them a rudder? Who—that I don't know. But he certainly would not have let them uh, disband so in in such an ugly and public fashion. Thank you so much for your time, and we eagerly await the film. Thank yeah. you so much. We encourage everyone to have a look at the Facebook page, uh, Fifth Beetle. They're also at Twitter at Fifth Beetle and the website, fifthbeetle.com. Just a brief point of information, uh, Baron Lou Grade did come up in the interview. Actually, his birth name was Lovat Vinogradsky from Tomak, Ukraine, uh, clearly Jewish. And uh, a neighbor of his further to the north there was none other than Mark Chagall von uh, Viteps Belarus, who is the subject of a fascinating exhibition now at the Jewish Museum entitled Chagall, Love, War, and Exile, on view through February the 2nd. For more information, you can visit thejewishmuseum.org. And this is the Jewish Museum located in the former Warburg Mansion at 5th Avenue and 92nd Street. So we recently learned that Chagall, specifically this crucifixion series that really is the heart of the current exhibit, is the current Pope's favorite artist. Chagall, in this middle period, deftly wove back and forth between the Jewish Jesus and the Christian Christ, but found the ultimate symbol of the Holocaust in the crucifixion, and paradoxically made it an image that brought the two religions closer together than before, at the moment of the highest indictment of this image's deadly potential. 
transgressive or visionary or both. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Susan Tamarkin Goodman, the Senior Curator Emerita at the Jewish Museum. Good afternoon, Ms. Goodman. Hello. Now, in this middle period, Chagall was in exile in New York, to some extent in mourning. Um, And at the same time, in the history of art, we have the development of abstract expressionism, which seems to be in the entire different direction than an artist like Chagall, who was choosing the iconography and symbol filled with perhaps the most content possible in the history of Western art. So if I can ask you, how do you put that direction together? Was Chagall aware of the development of abstract expressionism in New York um, at approximately the same time, naturally not exactly simultaneous? And do you see that Chagall was making art about the Holocaust, and should this be included in the ranks of the Holocaust and its representation? I think Chagall was a very personal, idiosyncratic artist, and it really didn't matter to him what other artists were doing just down the down the Hudson when he was living in upstate New York. Um, but it's a good question. Um, I don't think Chagall was known as a Holocaust artist. Uh, his image of the crucified Jesus, which he employed throughout his life, um, was not done just during the wartime. Uh, the first work with this image uh, is in our exhibition. It was created when Chagall was 25 years of age. He also included paintings of the crucified Jesus when he was over the age of 80. So I think it's a subject that was a lifelong obsession for the artist, and it resurfaces at different times in his life and corresponds to various personal and historical events. And Ms. Goodman, who was the intended audience of the crucifixion series, specifically the one now around the wartime. And do you have a record of reactions either from within the Jewish community or the Christian community, for that matter? I also bring this up because before he escaped Europe, um, with the help of Arian Fry, Chagall's neighbor in the south of France, I believe, was Sholem Ash, the great Yiddish modernist, who really, at the same time, was embarking on his grand Christian trilogy, three separate novels covering uh, Jesus, Mary, and Paul, respectively. And I wonder, what do we make of this time that perhaps the two greatest modern artists of Jewish Eastern Europe at the height of greatest crisis uh, for those Jews devoted their work to Christian themes? Well, first of all, his intended audience and his audience... um of the to, to uh, witness the crucifixion images um, were definitely the Christian world, and the figure of the crucified Jesus was the most powerful image that Chagall could find to convey his anguish to that community about the persecution and suffering of European Jewry. During the war, he was, of course, trying to help them understand this, and also that Jesus died as a Jew, suffering on the Roman cross. And by persecuting the Jewish people, um, Christians were in fact causing great pain to one of their own. In other words, Chagall equated the martyred Jesus with the plight of 20th century Jews. And additionally, Jesus was a symbol of his own personal suffering. 
So as to the Sholem Ash connection, uh, I don't. I've I've read that they met, that uh, the artist and the author met when they were both in Paris during the late 1930s. I'm not aware that they were in touch when they reached New York. In some of the depictions, there is great variety. And Chagall at times does seem to have a demonstratively Jewish Jesus with a white talit. But in other times, and I think the indicated symbol is the halo, it's clearly the Christian Christ. And there's one image, I think from 1952, if you would please address the Exodus, where it seems that it's a Christian Christ with the halo leading the Jews towards redemption. And there is a depiction of Moses as clearly diminutive in one corner of the work. Is this connected with the state of Israel? Does he see that as a, some sense, Christian rather than mosaic development? What is your own take on this image? Well, first of all, Chagall did not focus on the theological aspects of Christianity. Uh, he did not. He did indeed create a number of works which depict Jesus on the cross, both as a Christian Messiah and also as a Jewish martyr. You're absolutely right about that. And this, I think, it speaks simply to the historical situation of Jesus as a Jew and to the later Christian interpretation. Also, his interest in Israel seems unrelated and was deeply emotional and personal. While not an ideological Zionist, Chagall was committed to the Jewish Renaissance underway in the Holy Land. And in 1931, he took his first trip to Palestine, where he visited such sites as Spot, and he did images of various um, holy spots in Palestine at the time. As a curator, and what thoughts and considerations do you take in mind when planning such exhibition in terms of the possibility of um, dissonance in your audience's reaction to having such a central element in uh, this exhibit? And in particular, does this perhaps lead productively in a different way to rethink the dynamic of Jewish and Christian iconography in modern art or the cultural dynamic in the wider sense? Well, there is little doubt that it troubled many Jews to see the plethora of crucifixions appearing in Chagall's work. And even some Christians were disturbed by the use of such imagery by one of the world's most acclaimed Jewish artists. Indeed, many regarded Chagall's ideas and his use of Christian symbolism as naive and misguided. In the end, he was, att- he was attempting to depict what he wanted to depict was the Jewish victim, and he employed the crucifixion of Jesus for which Jews themselves were so often persecuted. And indeed, as you say, it was a transgressive uh, move on his part, But we have found that by interpreting Chagall's intention, we have not really come across um, much of a pushback in terms of the content. And in terms of Chagall's iconography, he's of course well known in his somewhat perhaps surrealist, proto-Cubist depiction, but really with themes of fantasy, of love, of course of shtetl life in particular. And, of course, I think, and I'd be curious to hear your reaction, that it's somewhat uh, a misappropriation of 
the characters in terms of the interpretation that I mean, Chagall actually didn't grow up in a Hasidic a sh- rural shtetl. Vitebsk was quite a city. His family was really part of some kind of merchant class in the city as well. So it was a fairly self-conscious use of that iconic vocabulary. But the question is, how does this change the story of Chagall? We have a middle period that is filled with the darkest of images and sentiments, and in a way is perhaps not a part of the canon of Chagall that has made him one of the most popular artists, especially, let's say, for art lovers who are not in the cognoscenti. Well, I think that there was one theme that um, sort of goes through his work from the beginning to the end, and throughout his life, um, Chagall's paintings make use of images which speak to a commitment to his Jewish identity. And he employs identifiable Jewish motifs derived from his shtetl youth in Vitebsk, as you say, in nearly all of his works. There's the wandering Jew, burning shtetls, Jew with Torah, Jewish ceremonial objects. And these um, figures appear even in the most devastating of the Holocaust works. I mean, remember the artist... Uh, left Russia, that left the Soviet Union in 1922, never to return, in a way that forced him to draw on his uh, storehouse of images for the rest of his life. And even the images of Jesus on the cross were used to stress Chagall's Jewish identity. In nearly every case, Jesus wears a Jewish prayer shawl rather than the usual loincloth to convey the nature of Jesus as a man and as a Jew. Ms. Goodman, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Quite welcome. Bye.